What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Mike and Grant's journal. <laughs> June 17th, 2019. Oh, don't equate me with this psychopath, please. <laughs> you don't want to be? I know people like Rorschach. <laughs> and I like Rorschach. Uh, I mean, I like reading about him. I like... At a distance. Watching him from a distance, yes. What but, a uh, fucking monster to have to be around. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to identify Rorschach. Uh, welcome back to Who Pods Watchmen, a Watchmen HBO companion podcast. Grant. Yes. The Watchmen HBO series has not premiered yet. Oh, man. It's too far away. Well, what are we doing now? We decided it's been a while since we've gone back to, as you like to call it, the original tome, the masterpiece that is the 12-issue series, the original Watchmen comic. And so we right. are going to break it down issue by issue for a, a series of 12 issues. We might even go a little bit more than that if we want to go into the, the ancillary material, which I think we should. I think so. And, you know, part of this – one of my favorite parts of reading this first issue of Watchmen was the entries of Hollis's book at the end. I actually didn't read it yet. Okay. I so, held off on it. Okay. So maybe we should – Maybe make that a separate podcast episode? I think so. Yeah, because that, I mean, that's, it was so good. We should make that a mini. Yeah. Put it, our, put it behind our paywall on Patreon and then say, hey, give us money. I think we should do that. That's a good idea. Because um, unlike Rorschach, we are whores. <laughs> we, we are a little bit more Adrian Vates. We, we sell out and we say, give us your money and we will give you our action figures. Indeed. Okay, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody to visit us at whopodsawatchmen.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there, uh, listen to all the episodes we've recorded so far, all two episodes we've recorded so far. We're just babies right now. Yeah. Grant, how else can people help us with uh, supporting this podcast? You totally make me be the shill, the one who, <laughs> who promotes. Okay, patreon.com slash Watchmen. Please go to that URL. If you guys are liking what you're hearing, you want to have a little bonus exclusive content for you, and you want to give us a little bit of money for what you're hearing. It's a great way to support us. We appreciate it. We are struggling to keep the lights on. No, <laughs> I mean – uh, we're, we're doing all right, but, uh, we appreciate the support. I think it'll allow us, um, to continue to grow this little venture into something more. And that's patreon.com slash who pods a watchman. Go give us a dollar an episode or two. Most of you guys should know what Patreon is by now, <laughs> but if you don't, um, yeah, go check it out. And we have our little listing of, of tiers and what you can get for your bucks. So as we teased earlier, we're going to go through. Issue one of the Watchmen comic. Indeed. And a little bit of history for this comic. So this is published by DC Comics. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're a little, little upstart comic book. Little indie. Detective yeah. Comics. Detective Comics, I believe. And yeah, they published this from 1986 to 87. Takes place in 85 though, right? Uh, according, to, according to Warshak's journal. His first entry. It's like right here next yeah. to me on this open page. Yeah. 1985. 85, yeah. Yeah. So I guess when this was written, he was writing it at the time period. Right. And this is, takes place in a dystopian universe. But a little bit of the, the details behind the scenes before we get into the story itself. Um, written by Alan Moore. 
one of the most should I say notorious? One of the most famous, but I might even say notorious, uh, comic writers ever. Sure. You would know his work as well from from Hell, Miracle Man, slash Marvel Man, V for Vendetta, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Killing Joke, Swamp Thing, What Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, For the Man Who Has Everything. This guy has written some of the greatest comic book stories of all time, and he's also a bit kooky. He's got a big old beard, and he's into serpent shamanism. And where where do people generally fall on Alan Moore as a person, not as an artist? Because I just kind of keep up with the work, but not really with the man. I think he's a bit of a cantankerous kook. Okay, all right. <laughs> generally, I mean he he's pretty famous for hating all the adaptations that have ever been made of any of his work. Mm. He doesn't want DC to ever sell his work to a movie studio. And to be fair, too late. From what we've seen, have we really – I mean, V for Vendetta might be argued to, to be a pretty decent adaptation. I've never seen that movie. Um, it just – From Hell was okay. From Hell was all right. But uh, yeah, it seems like a lot of his stuff doesn't get the proper treatment. I would say that the stuff that they did on Justice Justice League, adapting his little stories into shorts, like um, What Happened to the Man of Tomorrow and the, For the Man Who Has Everything, mm. Mm, that's good stuff. It was great little animation. On the but, animated mm-hmm. the shorts, yeah. But Justice League was just killing it back then. You didn't like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the <laughs> oh cinematic masterpiece? <laughs> no. Shane West? How can I not love oh, it yeah. with Shane West in there? Jeez. Um, illustrated by Dave Gibbons. I mean, this guy's got an amazing um, style. Uh, he, he's also worked on a bunch of – this guy's worked on a ton of stuff, notably uh, like Green Lantern and Flash, a lot of other characters like that. Um, colored by John Higgins. He also did like some 2000 AD uh, comics and then The Killing Joke. And this comic, it's interesting enough, was originally pitched um, right after DC had acquired um, all of the back catalog of Charlton Comics characters. And those might sound not that familiar to you, but if I actually name some of the characters, yeah. like Captain Adam or uh, The Question, you'd be like, oh, okay, Blue I Beetle. know those. Blue Beetle. Very mainstream now. Yeah. These characters were are all part of um, this other comic book company, Charlton Comics. And once they acquired them, Alan Moore saw this and went, I would love to take a, a stab at taking that property, taking that world of characters and doing what he does with Watchmen with them. And DC was like, hold up. <laughs> we don't want you to turn some of these beloved characters into rapists and murderers. <laughs> I don't know how we feel about into that. Into right-wing ideologues. So they said, okay, we like your concept, but can you just make your own characters for it? And he did. But the original characters that he'd mapped out for this, uh, I thought I'd read out who these were. Right. Uh, Rorschach was initially the question. The comedian was Peacemaker, Night Owl, Blue Beetle, Dr. Manhattan was Captain Adam, Silk Spectre 2 was Nightshade, and Ozymandias was Peter Cannon, a.k.a. Thunderbolt. If you really want to dive into the correlations between the Watchmen characters and the Charlton comics characters, at least how Moore saw the Charlton characters and what he wanted to do with them, check out the Watchmen Absolute Edition. It's really good. The back third of the book has all of Moore's notes about what he wanted to do with these characters, how he wanted to grind them up and dirty them up a little bit for his story. It's really great. Are those his notes? Yeah. I, th- I thought that's the chicken scratch scrawl of uh, the murderer <laughs> from uh, 
What was that movie? Uh, Seven. <laughs> oh, yeah. It could be. Uh, but they also uh, – the book also has letters that he wrote to Dave Gibbons about what he was trying to do and the themes he was trying to tackle with these characters. It's really insightful. Sexy little love letters between him and <laughs> Gibbons. Uh, yeah, so – Gibbons, speaking of which, uses a, a really rigid nine-panel structure for his comics and carries that through the entire series. And it's it's fascinating to see how playful he is with such a rigid structure. I mean, you know, comics like can go buck wild, breaking breaking out of, of the barriers, doing weird stuff with the gutters. And yeah. the fact that he adheres to this and then is able to uh, – we're going to get into some of the brilliant stuff that he does with it, but I, I wanted to note that up front and talk about um, the original title for the whole comic book was Who Killed the Peacemaker, mm. which is uh, Who Killed the Comedian, comedian. basically. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because have you ever read uh, Powers, the comic book by Brian B- Michael Bendis and um, Oming? No. Oh, well, they called theirs um, Who Killed Retro Girl. And I'm like, that's got to be a reference mm-hmm. to this. Yeah, for sure. And it, Yeah, Powers it, is one of those that is um, definitely influenced by Watchmen. Oh, or, yeah, if it, there wasn't Watchmen, there would be no Powers or Irredeemable. Almost like straight up cribbing a lot of stuff, it <laughs> It's interesting. I never thought about the uh, the art style in terms of the formal, like, what is it, nine-panel structure? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? I don't really know anything about comic art. You know, I'm more of a story guy. But – yeah, I never really paid attention to that until you just brought it up. I'm I'm turning the pages here, and this all looks very formal. There's like no big crazy splash pages happening. Exactly. Wow, and, it, and it's that's such why a I like revolutionary story. But the art is so classic. And when he does break out of the nine grid structure, like to just like combine some of the boxes together, it makes it a little bit more powerful because mm-hmm. your eye goes, "Oh, now things are opening up." I'm taking a little breath. Taking uh, it's slowing the pace down a little bit. It, it just really changes the dynamic. It kind of makes it, in a way, a little bit more uh, predictable, a little bit more familiar, I guess. For a, a world that is unfamiliar, I think it's a good way to introduce people to it. Yeah, when some of those panels are really expanded, you know, sometimes it's to show how giant uh, Doctor Manhattan can look, right? But it's also to focus in on some more poignant quiet moments like when night owl is thinking about his past and maybe sad about having to quit being a superhero mm-hmm. he's getting all emo yeah <laughs> night owl's having his little emo moment exactly so we are going to go through this a bit detailed we're gonna go page by page and we're going to talk about a lot of the like easter eggs and stuff but i was wondering mike if you wanted to tell the people a quick synopsis of like what the story is about yeah, in so overview. it was written in 86. The story begins in 85, just after Richard Nixon has won re-election to his fifth term as president. Oh, man. Can you imagine the good old days? <laughs> <laughs> we might be at the brink of, of a new. I was going to say, like, this, this seems really relevant now with, uh, you know, who uh, going on the news saying. Do not say Voldemort's name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people say maybe two terms is enough for me. Okay. Uh, so this is, like you said, an alternative reality, a dystopia where superpowered people have tweaked the the circumstances of the world. They've altered history. Uh, Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, he, he straight up like – Changes the world. His existence has made it so that the outcome of the Vietnam War 
is essentially like he steps in, the U.S. wins the Vietnam War, and we annex Vietnam as our 51st state. Like, <laughs> just imagining how radically that would change our history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's still like a looming panic, though, driven by the Cold War that is loosely abated by the presence of Dr. Manhattan, but he also. But he also kind of escalates the ticking clock towards the Cold War because how else are our Cold War enemies going to beat us but to Bomb annihilate us? hell yeah. out of us? Exactly, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting because I think Dr. Manhattan is becoming we, – we see that he's growing more and more apathetic. Mm-hmm. So that also seems to – I'm not sure if like culturally everyone else is like tapping into this idea that like their superpowered protector weapon – it's growing more and more distant from humanity. And if you don't have that, what's your shield when you, you know, started a bunch of, talked a bunch of shit? <laughs> How do you protect yourself if, right. if, uh, if your, your big hero is going to ghost out to Mars? Yeah, I'm not sure if, that is, if that's really felt because in this first issue, you, you feel that Silk Spectre 2 is feeling that. that right, he's right, right. becoming less and less human and less and more apathetic. But – uh, maybe that's not. Maybe that's implied though by this these scenes of just like desolation and anxiety that you see on the street. I think what's kind of fascinating about this comic is, as much as he paints a lot of these aspects of like this dystopian society as bleak, it's really not that unfamiliar to the 1985 that was right. currently existing. Right. A lot of people had these exact same fears and paranoias going on, uh, the Cold War and not knowing like, – because the, like the Berlin Wall didn't fall until 89. Mm-hmm. And right around this time, tensions were pretty high. So, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily I feel that unfamiliar. Sub out Nixon for Ronald Reagan. Right. And Reagan really. wasn't necessarily making everyone feel comfortable. No. Some people, maybe. Really similar. And also the dystopian look of the streets of Manhattan. You watch Taxi Driver. You're looking at the same thing, you know? And they didn't yeah. they didn't dirty up those streets, you know? No. They, Scorsese just filmed them, you know? And, I mean, men- mentioning Taxi Driver here, there's a lot of correlations between the themes of a character like Rorschach and, you know, Robert De Niro's character in Taxi Driver. Right. So one of the interesting things is, yes, this is a world that exists with superheroes. And after a certain point in time, the superheroes, while operating as masked vigilantes, um, stepped out of the bounds of what was comfortable for the rest of society, namely police. And there was something called the Keen Act, which was introduced. And this basically said, no more superheroes unless you're um, a- operating under the purview of the government. Kind of like what uh, Marvel does with Civil War right. later. And so the uh, – what do they call it? The Sokovia Accords Sokovia in, in the MCU. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, hey, we're going to keep track on you. And so we are now in a society that's um, I think eight years later, uh, no superheroes are supposed to be existing. And uh, we follow a guy, Rorschach, who's investigating a the murder of a, a fellow superhero from the past. And he goes to – Talk to other uh, superheroes that were kind of in their posse to kind of let them know, hey, this guy died and we think that something might be up. There might be a, a, a cape killer. Right. Okay, so let's dive into this comic.
I know you have a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a bit obsessively. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. Um, well, let's just jump into the first frame. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about this first page. The first page is brilliant to me because how it mirrors the very last page is a perfect a perfect analogy to the the protagonist of the first issue, at least. Although I'd say for the whole thing, Rorschach is pretty much our main protagonist. In this first issue, at least. At least, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, the first issue, uh, it mirrors the first page and the last page layout right. of this slow zoom out from the iconic smiley face badge, smiley face pin. Um, and it zooms up away from it up up into the city of someone looking down on it or watching it, if you will. The Watchmen. And I will. And Rorschach, uh, for any of you who aren't familiar, Rorschach test is, is a mirror image uh, inkblot, which is what his iconic mask is. It's a mirror image reflecting um, two sides of this. And the bloody brutal version that we are introduced to on the first page as well as the cleaned up and um, almost uh, masked over um, ignored it, like uh, it seems like uh, in the very last page they're trying to put a rosy coat on a bleak situation mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting how those those two sides of the coin uh, parallel and um, work against each other yeah because it ends the first issue ends with a joke It ends with a joke. It's pretty great. And there's something a little less funny about the first panel. (laughs) And the very first panel is... But there's still a joke in this first first page. It is so cleverly written. And how it corresponds with with all of the images. Um, It starts off with Rorschach's journal. And he's talking about... the dog carcass he sees in yeah, an alley that's got it's it's been burst open by a tire that ran over it. It's really brutal. Can it's, you can you imagine being a kid or a teenager in the eighties and picking this up and what would you think? You know? Like fuck, I had never read anything like this when I was a kid. Right. I was here I was enjoying Richie Rich comics and <laughs> shit. And then it's like, oh This, this is not Marmaduke. Uh, the streets will fill – the gutters will fill up with blood and it will scab over and right. the whores will drown. And I'm like, Jesus. Yeah. In the context of 2019, this is PG-13 shit. Right. But back then, this is really revolutionary. But you know what? I, I should take that back. It's not necessarily PG-13 because this is really graphic imagery. Um, this is brutal. This is very brutal graphic imagery. What I find so intriguing in this first issue is that Rorschach is the first voice we hear. Mm-hmm. We're inside his head, and it's – I think Moore just chose that because he's leaning into the idea that costume heroes would have a really negative impact on the world because the idea of the world giving license to costume heroes would embolden these extremists who dole out their own brand of justice and are not necessarily psychologically capable of doing so. It's also kind of fascinating because you would typically think that a superhero is a bit of an optimist, right? Mm. Oh, you think yeah. of like, you know, Superman. He's he's trying to fight crime because he believes in the good of humanity and he's he wants to protect that. Rorschach, on the other hand, 
Uh, I would not say is an optimist. I would not say he is a a person who looks at the beauty of humanity and wants to uh, no. protect that. This guy is a person who, straight up, plain and simple, wants there to be justice for the evil in the world, and he wants to be the hand that enforces it in the right. most brutal of fashions if he can. And he has a very narrow sense of what is right and what is wrong. Oh, he's and, a complete hypocrite. And, and Yeah, and, and in no way does he really – is he really discerning about the level of punishment a criminal should receive, you know? Like this guy would cut off John Veljohn's hands for stealing the bread, you know? Yes. Like – that's how extreme he is. Some guy th- – I mean they, they talk later about a particular villain who was only a villain because he essentially got off on being be- beat up by superheroes. So right. he would do a mundane crime in front of them just so that they'd beat him up a little bit and that was like – that was him getting his jollies. Rorschach threw his ass off a building or something. He right? threw him down an elevator shaft. An elevator yeah. shaft. That's what it was. <laughs> and uh, that's that's what is the, the final joke of this uh, comic. <laughs> But yeah, okay, uh, going back to this first page, they do a slow zoom up from this iconic smiley smiley face pin. It's got a little bit of blood on it, but it's sitting in a pool of blood that's being washed down the gutters. Mm -hmm. And they pull up from this to see uh, a a crazy man. Let's let's refer to this guy as Walter, maybe Walter Kovacs, Uh, a guy who's got one of those, the end is nigh signs. He's one of those street madman proselytizers. Right. And he's walking up and down the streets during the day. Um, some guy who owns a business is washing off the blood from outside of his business. And the, the scene keeps zooming up, up and up and up until it gets to the window of where the victim that we find out on the next page is the comedian got pushed out the window and dropped to his death. And the whole time it pulls out, it uh, pulls upward into this bird's eye view it's Rorschach going over in his journal the awfulness of society, the pestilence, and how Alan Moore ties in his language. He has Rorschach actually be a pretty poetic character oh, yeah. when he writes stuff down. And when he talks to people, he's completely socially inept. Right. When he writes things down, he or his interior monologue is very deep. Yeah, it's deep. It's, it's filthy and it's <laughs> kind of awful, but it's deep yeah. and profound. And – one of the best lines he has is the accumulated filth, all of their sex and murder will foam up about the their wastes and all the horrors and politicians will look up and shout, save us. And I will look down and whisper, no, no. Who's he going to save? He, I don't know who he's saving. Like he, he doesn't care about necessarily saving people right. so much as like. Just enacting justice. It, just enacting justice. Just enacting justice. He has this – it's almost like he has this um, – later on in Hollis's book, Hollis writes about how his grandfather taught him about the difference between country folk and city folk mm. and the idealized version of the the squeaky clean country family is what you want to aspire to, not those dirty criminal, you know, uh, homosexual uh, city dwellers. Right. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And and it feels like Rorschach has the same kind of idealized notion of what the world should be. You know, the world should be these patriot. The world should be full of these or safe for these patriotic uh, people who are the complete opposite of what the worst version of a city dweller would be. You know, a criminal. But it's weird because it's it's like he is cleaning up the streets 
for an idealized version of humanity that doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. All the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up above their waists and all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, save us. And I'll look down and whisper, no. And it, it you know, comes back to the question, is Rorschach a hero? No. Is he a good guy? I mean, they paint him as a superhero. There are no good guys here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Night Owl would be our closest analog to our traditional superhero. If we need a moral center, it's going to be Night Owl. And he's he's jaded about it, just like everyone else. And mm-hmm. and he's rendered almost inept <laughs> yeah. by uh, how he adheres to the Keen Act. I mean, it's... It's kind of, yeah, I mean, look at the parallels to like what Civil War does later. I think it continues the conversation in an interesting way. Civil War from Marvel, folks. Right. Um, but yeah, I I don't know who to root for in this so much as just kind of be fascinated and following along with the story. Let me ask you, um, this story is about so many things. Mm-hmm. But at its core, at least in this first issue... It's largely about solving a crime. It's about a mystery. Yes. Ultimately, it becomes a, a treatise on um, accountability for those in power and how we keep them in check. Right. Do you think it's a, it's a stronger book for having that focused narrative? Like, okay, the backbone, the spine of this thing is just going to be a mystery. Do you think if it was just a general loose social commentary without – a type of genre story to its backbone, do you think it would be more do you do you think it would be as successful? I think man, I don't know. I don't know how it would have necessarily played out. I think it's a smart move to lean on mystery to give us the audience something compelling to want to push forward with because what what Alan Moore is doing here is going to you know, rustle some feathers, I think, of a lot of the comic book audience. And he's trying to say, hey, go along with me on this journey. Mm-hmm. I'm going to deconstruct and and mock a lot of what you enjoy, likely, about the superhero genre. I'm going to point out a lot of its flaws and inconsistencies and how this isn't grounded in a reality that any of us would actually want to be a part of. Right. But I'm going to couch it initially in a, a compelling mis- murder mystery that you're going to want to follow along with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a really smart call. If you read the Absolute Edition and you read some of Alan Moore's letters to Dave Givens in the back, it's clear that he wanted to write a story about what would happen if superheroes actually appeared in our world and how right. not and how much of a like, huge impact that would have on our lives, on our in politics, and it would be largely a negative one. And within that framework, there is so much to explore and and tell that it can be it could have been kind of a slog uh to tell a story like that, but it's just smart that he couches it in this genre narr- narrative of a murder mystery that we can all follow along while feeding in all those larger themes into that that spine of the story. Well, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, too, it seemed like he was going to already have a leg up if he was going to be able to borrow 
relatively familiar characters who um, mm-hmm. have already been established as uh, – Particular superhero um, tropes, I guess, essentially, right. or, or or character types, yeah. archetypes, and once he didn't have that to lean on, he had to make sure that he still was able to present a story. I mean, he had he had more work to do. He had to establish brand new characters that felt relatively familiar to ones that like we have an analog to, but he also needed to drive a, a, a story that is gripping to us. So. With all of that in mind, I think it makes sense. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I also wanted to point out that the artwork is brilliant. I, it, it's all clean. He's not de- trying to do a lot of, like, heavy uh, shading or anything that kind of, like, obscures or tries to um, impress upon us too much of, of a mood. It's, yeah, it just tells a story. Um, that, along with the coloring that's done, it's... It's it's bold and it separates everything, but it, it doesn't feel um, taxing to look at. Like everything is just clean and, and direct and I can follow along. And then that makes it just all the more enriching for all the details they put in. Like in this first page, you notice this um, – the truck that's driving through has a little circle with a, a triangle on it. That's Adrian Vate's company. Oh, yeah. Um, that's going on there. Right. He does these these particular parallels between the dialogue and the artwork where he's talking about the true face of the city, and that's where we open up with the smiley face there. So true face, smiley face. He talks about the blood in the gutters as we see blood actually draining down into the gutters. He um, he talks about walking in um, someone's foot, his father's footsteps or whatever, and then you see his bloody footsteps as he walks through the blood, and the, like uh, Kovacs is walking through the blood. Right. It's it's really tight. It's really controlled how everything is reflecting each other in the um, narrative. I'm, and I think I'm finally ready to move to the second page. <laughs> page two. <laughs> we should have a chime every time we, we turn a page. But I, I think, you know, for page two and three, we could kind of cover this together because we're now going into the detectives. Like we pulled up from the view of, of uh, Kovacs down on the street, a.k.a. Rorschach, to – the detectives now investigating the crime, investigating the crime scene, and these guys—they uh, don't really know what's going on. They seem to be like, "Well, it seems like it was a pretty brutal fight because that's a really big dude, so it must have been a bunch of other guys that came in here." Ultimately, you and I know who kills him because we've read the whole thing, right? But for any of you guys who don't know, we won't say that. Um, but it is interesting enough that they're kind of discussing. Whether it could be one person or, or multiple people. And we're seeing their conversation in kind of these uh, cooler colors and just like regular daylight juxtaposed with these um, bathed in red kind of flashback scenes to the comedian's actual assault and murder in in his home, in his apartment. Yeah. While I'm looking at the comic now, the flashback panels and the current time panels are really distinct because – the modern day panels or whatever you want to call them are mostly green and the flashbacks are bathed in this red and it's not necessarily a blood red. It's like a maroonish yeah, it's like red. it's like a maroonish red. A little toned down. Yeah, it's so great. So it's really easy to discern where you're at every time you're – when you're following along the panels. And also I think this is one of the better – um, scenes in the Watchmen movie adaptation. Yes. Right? 
Yeah, because he does this really well, where he he goes back and forth between this uh, investigation and the uh, the brutal murder of the comedian. It's Zack Snyder's bread and butter too. If he can do some brutal uh, violence and slow mo scenes, <laughs> that's what he loves. Yeah, it's done really well. And yeah, I mean, he captures these like frame for frame, like pulled right out of the comic. But we're gonna go. We're gonna discuss that at some point. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll do a solo. One, <laughs> no, I'll watch it. But um, I, I like all of the detail that Gibbons puts into this. I mean, you can tell this is such a collaborative process between Moore, between Gibbons, and then um, I always forget uh, Higgins, the colorist's work, and how they all work together on this vision to make it a really cohesive thing all the way from conception of writing it to how it will be illustrated and how the color will also tell a story in here. And these two pages – Two and three just like immediately show us like they know what they're doing. This is a professional comic. This is going to be an incredible story. And looking at all the, all the details, like you get a sense of what Edward Blake, a.k.a. the comedian's bachelor life was in here. It was gross. Yeah. It's this guy who uh, pulls his couch right up to the TV, has his Funyuns right by it, and he's got his <laughs> nudie magazines everywhere. Yeah. He's just lounging about. I mean, he's he's a fit dude who obviously goes out and... Kills a bunch of innocent people when he needs to, when the government calls, <laughs> whatever is going on here. But um, otherwise, he's just bacheloring it up and uh, loafing about in his his robe. It's crazy. the The more we get to know about the comedian in this in this uh, first issue, it, it tells us his backstory of this government sanctioned nationalistic lunatic who was just given this free reign to murder people. He thought should be murdered just as long as he did it in the name of patriotism. Yep. It's pretty harrowing. And again, the second superhero that we see is a picture of this just nihilistic, just evil son of a bitch, you know? So we're already in a world where I don't think we get a, well, by this point, by page two, when I was first reading this, I'm already looking for, okay, who am I supposed to root for here? Who is, are we, are, is there going to be a hero? Is there going to be a moral center? I mean, we, we, we start with Rorschach and we're like, well, maybe Rorschach mm. guy's a little bit, a uh, little bit edgy, but right. you know, maybe it's like Batman or something like yeah. sometimes Batman could be a bit moody. Sure. Um, then we see these detectives and then they, they don't actually factor in as much. Like, I don't know their names. Mm-mm. Uh, I want to point out that uh, in the second page, you see a little – it's hard to kind of see, but when they're looking out the window, you see a little um, thing fl- flying in the sky. And later, you'll you'll see it a little bit more clearly through other panels. But there's zeppelins. Oh, yeah. This is a world right. where zeppelins fly about. It's a, a different reality, kind of like the Fringe other world. <laughs> yeah, Fringe totally stole this from the Watchmen. Yeah, they, lo- they love the zeppelins. And I thought Zeppelins are, are interesting. I, I was seeing someone else point out, like, Zeppelins are filled with hydrogen. Hydrogen is the element on the head of Dr. Manhattan. Right. And in a way, isn't Dr. Manhattan really looking down over everyone else? He's a godlike being, like Superman, who's looking down on everyone else and could murder them if he wants. <laughs> Pass that pipe, bro. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the, yeah, the detectives are, uh, trying to figure out the whole murder scene. They give us some other little clues about Blake that he's shaking hands with vice president Ford, which is a good 
little um, foreshadowing of the role that Ford is still the vice president in the current day. And uh, yeah, we're going to find out. We we already mentioned this earlier, but Nixon's been around for five terms as president. He's becoming a king, essentially, with Ford as his right-hand man for this whole time. And what a nightmare scenario. This is the scenario. This is the the world in which uh, they would be living in. We also get a little nod to um, there's a pirate ship on the bookshelf in mm-hmm. the on the third page mm-hmm. in uh, his bedroom, and we will see throughout this comic book series that the comic book world that exists within the world of Watchmen is one in which people prize pirates. Yeah, like adventure comics, but mostly like. Pirates at Sea comics. Yeah, yeah. So they're like one of the big famous ones is called the Black Freighter, mm-hmm. a comic book series, which they actually have an issue of inside of the Watchmen comic that uh, Moore writes another little comic, a comic inside a comic. And yeah, pirates are like all the rage. And what I think is interesting is in the TV show, the HBO show that's coming up, there is a character called Pirate Jenny. Pirate Jenny, mm-hmm. which is based off of their this world's love of pirates. That's true. Yeah, there's also a song called Pirate Jenny. Mm, I don't I don't know about that. Okay. We'll get into that later. Uh they make another little joke uh at the end of this when they hop into the elevator. We see some of the other people, the the folk that exist in this world. There's like almost this little bit of a punk. Yeah, there's some street, like street punk cyberpunk kind of looking people here, right? A little bit cyberpunkish, yeah. yeah. Uh they have weird pipes and kooky hats yeah. and and the style is a little bit different. But they make a joke about, like, uh, let's go downstairs. And the elevator guy says, ground floor coming up, right in the scene as comedians getting thrown out the window. Right. Which floor you want? Oh, uh, ground floor, please. Ground floor coming up. Let's not raise too much dust over this one. We don't need any masked Avengers getting interested in cutting So I'm realizing I'm going like a little bit too detailed in this. So okay. I kind of want to like pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he like in the next page, he, he falls out, falls downstairs. And I, I still love the detail of like what we see in the background. We're seeing the mention of Vietnam being the 51st state in like one of these little background posters. We see something about nuclear war being like a, uh, now like being turned into like this um advertisement for candy. Oh, that's right. That's what that was. I wasn't sure what that was advertising. It's yeah, candy. called meltdowns. <laughs> and like so obviously in in the Cold War era, yeah. They all have this on their mind, but they've kind of adopted it into their pop culture. But at the same time, this is a present fear that seems to grip people. Um, and then look at the bottom, look at the last panel of page four, mm-hmm. and then look at the top panel of page five, and you'll see how they parallel each other because these guys are like talking about how they need – the detectives are talking about how they need to keep a wrap on this murder case that they're investigating of Edward Blake because while the Keen Act exists and most superheroes aren't around. There's still some kooks like this guy Rorschach. Yeah. And they don't want that guy to get a, a get wind of this case because he'll come in and fuck things up for them. And they say that right as they pass Walter Kovacs, the redheaded crazy guy with the, the end is nigh sign. And they talk about getting a chill um, as they walk by him. 
some heavy-handed foreshadowing there. Yeah, very much. But the scene is the exact same setting for those two panels where it's that building during the daytime and then that building at night. And right. the exact place where they have Rorschach is where they have the hat or of uh, K- Kovacs is where they have the hat of Rorschach in the next panel. I thought, oh, that's pretty clever. Oh, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. It just looks different because the moon's up and he doesn't have the sign and yeah. Like we don't find out for another like four issues that it's confirmed that that guy is Rorschach. Mm -hmm. But they were hinting at it right here. And then yeah, then we get our introduction to Rorschach and – In full costume. It feels much more detective like he's finding the clues. He's casing the scene, picking up the pin, looking up at the building and he pulls out his grappling hook gun, (laughs) shoots up the building, slips inside – and this is where we finally get to our title page, uh, the title of the comic. At Midnight, All the Agents. And what is that? It's a Bob Dylan reference. Right. So are you familiar with this, like, Bob Dylan song? Desolation Row? Yeah. Yeah, um, I like the song. Um, you know, I know Bob Dylan's uh, music and writings are very socially aware and socially conscious. Um I think in this song, Dylan is talking about unchecked power. Right. Yeah. Which I, that fits. Right. It's also quoted at the end of this uh, first issue. Yeah, I think we get we get the full the quote in full. But when Rorschach kind of goes into Edward Blake's apartment and he's looking around, they have this clever scene, which it took me a little bit to figure out what's going on with the panels on uh, page seven here, but. Rorschach goes to the wardrobe. He puts his hand inside of it oh, and right. his yeah. arms bent. He goes to the outside of it and puts his arms straight. And he goes, huh. Because so he's realizing it's it's a little shorter inside than the outside. And I was like, oh, that's what they're showing. And then they go and reinforce it by ha- having him do this with a, a hanger. Mm-hmm. At first I thought he was looking for a secret panel using the hanger and he just couldn't find it. But instead, yeah, you see how he measures the outside with a little bend in the hanger. Versus the inside and the bend is um, about halfway of where it was. It's like, that's just, that's clever visual storytelling without any dialogue. It's interesting that they devote a whole page to this, him measuring this out. I I think that they wanted to emphasize that Rorschach does have legitimate detective skill. Just how like methodical he is. Yeah. Yeah. This guy is, is crazy. Sure. But he's also a person who knows how to check a crime scene. And sure enough, he goes in, locates the button, and clicks open to find the comedian's stash of his costume and his gimp mask. (laughs) That is 100% a gimp mask. It's so creepy looking. So yeah, the the, he he pulls out all the, the supplies, and that's where we get the... The old-timey picture of the Minutemen, which becomes so much more relevant later in the, the series. And it's great because you're looking at this picture of the Minutemen and you're, the world really starts to get deeper in that moment. And then you go to the next page and more just drops you into the texture of his superhero world, who these Minutemen were, um, how important they were, and you start to get the history of uh superheroes in this world man and like look at the lighting look at how he handles nighttime with just a flashlight investigating the house the bedroom of of edward blake and then how it jumps over using the the yellow and sepia tone of the picture 
to the warm lighting of Hollis Mason's house in mm-hmm. the next scene. It's more inviting, yeah. But yeah, I, I thought it was a really clever way for them to transition between Rorschach figuring out that um, he's got a costume superhero who was killed in this house, and so and he he recognizes the outfit clearly as comedian. And then we jump over to this next scene, and one of the other people, one of the old guard, the Minutemen, is right there talking about the old times of when he was a superhero, uh, Night Owl 1, talking to Night Owl 2. And again, just always so densely rich with all of the detail. This is such a rewarding uh, comic book for reread, because you just look at what's going on with all the details in the background, you see... All the news clippings is talking about how he retired and um, Hollis Mason retired and opened up an auto business. And then you look at the books that he has on his bookshelf. He's got auto maintenance books as well as the books he wrote under the hood, which is uh, what a dorky pun. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so perfect. And he's got his little trophies and awards. He's got a he's got a statue that says in gratitude. And uh, it's it's turned at an angle where it looks more like the word ingratitude, like you're ungrateful. Or ingrate. Yeah. And I was just like, they're just clever, Mike. They're clever with this comic. It's it's nice to – oh, yeah. And then um, the clock. The clocks are always featuring about five minutes to midnight. It's almost midnight. And this is the ongoing theme of the – imminent doom, the doomsday clock counting down to the end of the world that they like to emphasize. I really love this expanded fourth panel where you see both night owls in the frame. Mm -hmm. And they're both a bit, these don't look like superheroes. They're both a bit hunched over and they're more clearly telling you their glory days are gone. Yeah. No country for old men. Exactly. Uh, This is further emphasized as Dan um, Dan Dryberg, the new Night Owl, Night Owl 2, who's also retired, when he leaves the auto shop, you see his um, Hollis Mason's house is, uh, slash auto shop has been graffitied. That's where we first see the Who Watches the Watchmen. Right. Hey, our podcast name. <laughs> um, but we also see this sign, which is you know just a, a great analogy, a little metaphor here. Uh, the sign for the auto shop says, um, we fix them, obsolete models and special uh, specialty. And I'm like, they are clearly the obsolete models. Right. But are they beyond fixing? Stay tuned, folks. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like how this also, it, it picks up following Dryberg as he's walking home. We get a little more scenes of the cyberpunks on the street. Like one, this one lady has a swastika ta- tattoo. Oh, yeah. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah, we, the, the streets don't look safe. Like, no streets look safe. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit shady and uncomfortable. It feels like a, a Joel Schumacher Batman movie. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like, are, are you guys tough or are you guys wearing fluorescent visors? I'm not sure <laughs> if you're a bad guy or if we're going to a sweet rave later. Um, they, they walk, uh, he walks down the street to his apartment complex, and it looks like he owns floors one through four of this apartment building. On his sign. So I guess Dryberg is um, pretty loaded. At least you would think until you get to that god-awful, ugly pink kitchen, kitchen of his. Yeah. It's this dinky little din- dinette set. And he walks in to find Rorschach there slurping on some beans. And he's clearly disturbed by this. He's scared. 
out of his mind. Yeah, he's he's like, oh my god. Oh wait, it's Rorschach. That's even worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, Rorschach's eating a cold can of beans like a hobo, like you do. Mm-hmm. And Dan Dryberg's like, what are you doing here, dude? And he's like, hey, I'm here investigating this murder. Well, I think uh, some of these superheroes are getting picked off. Mm-hmm, beans. <laughs> I, I feel like he talks like Sling Blade. Uh, yeah, probably. Mm, them beans. I like what you're doing better than uh, what what his name did in the movie. Oh uh, no, you're not. I don't yeah. remember what his accent was. Oh, it was like the Dark Knight Batman plus ten. Oh, geez. it was really bad. Yeah, <laughs> just like yelling all the time yeah. about uh, everything. Um, yeah. So he's he's it, we quickly discovered that these guys have a history, and they used to be partners. That is crazy to me. Like when I first read this, that these guys used to be partners because yeah, Night Owl seems a little bit more cleaned up and polished and maybe a little bit more self-righteous. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, to a diff- in a different degree. Like, he seems like he's concerned for the everyman and has a, a pure sensibility, a, a certain degree of nobility about, about the superhero practice. It seems like you would trust his sense of right and wrong a lot more than Rorschach. Right. This is... Um, this is Captain America teaming up with the Punisher. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah. mm, would they actually work together? I don't know. I feel like Captain America would be like, cut that shit out. Right. But the Punisher is a force of nature, just like Rorschach is to a degree. And this is where we first get Rorschach's theory. He's interacting with someone. He's talking about, like, the comedian was killed. They both know this guy. And it's like, yeah, I think um, I think superheroes might be getting picked off. And... What we see is everyone that he tells this theory to basically just dismisses him. Like, ah, that's a kooky theory. You're also a kooky dude. Uh, please get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> it's like, we've been forced to move on. We've moved on. Please leave. But, oh, and you also, is this where you learn that uh, Rorschach is wanted? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also, I mean, if we want to talk about, like, the details they have in this. At one point, while he's talking to um, Night Owl, he pours out some sugar cubes and mm-hmm. takes them in his pocket. He eats them later. And then, uh, yeah, like 10 pages later, you'll see that he's eating one when he gets vaporized by Dr. Manhattan right. and drops it on the floor. <laughs> what little details. Anyway. Um, he, this is a guy who would just eat sugar cubes, like just walking around. Not proper candy. No. Just actual sugar cubes, yeah. Just like a fly. Yeah. All of their scenes, it seems like they have a couple, they have dual purposes. And this isn't just to have him inform Dan Dryberg, but it's also to uh, show how Dan slash Night Owl used to be used to have his own bat cave, his owl cave mm-hmm. down in the basement, and how everything's just dusty and hidden. A scene that we'll of course return to as he decides to kind of pack, pick back up the cowl and be a superhero again. Yeah, and, and you also get a sense that he. Even though he's let his superhero muscle kind of atrophy, he misses it. Yeah. Like you said, like the, the blown out panel on page 13 where he's sitting there looking at the pen with his costume kind of looming behind him. Yeah. It's straight up. Look, look at that Batman utility belt hanging there. It's perfect. Um, but yeah, he obviously, you know, misses it. And then, but he, he, he hung up the spurs. The next page is just gorgeous. Look at the color as Rorschach's, you know, once again, dear so, diarying. So 80s. I, I love the sunset and the scene on the rooftop as <laughs> he's he's moping. He's moping about like, I'm the only one who seems to care mm, about this yeah. comedian murder. 
And this is the sequence that really gives us a sense of how Rorschach is perceived by the rest of society. He's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go hit the town, hit a bar and see what the locals can give me as far as info about this murder. Everybody drops a shit on the floor every time he walks into a room. He's a scary dude. <laughs> and then we see why immediately. Because he goes and just – he goes up to this, uh, this guy, Steve, which could be a reference to Steve Ditko. I don't know. Steve Ditko inv- uh, created the original question. Mm. And he goes up to Steve and just starts breaking this guy's fingers because that guy made like a, a snide comment in his presence. He's like, what do you know about this, this, um, this murder? And he just starts snapping fingers and terrorizing everyone. I love this cliche because it's a cliche of the hero going to the local dive bar where all the criminals hang out and give me some information, you know? Mm-hmm. But instead of just like, you know, Buffy would do this all the time. She would go to the demon bar, you know, she, Whedon's kind of working the same trope. But you never really see them do anything as brutal as this. You never see the hero just instantly go to breaking somebody's fingers over and over. The great irony is... The only person who seems to be a bad guy in this situation is Rorschach. Yep. Everyone is calm, collected. They're just playing pool. They're doing their own thing. They were minding their own business. And he's the one who comes in there. He breaks fingers. And then he bemoans the idea that like, oh, these other – these people, they're all just whores and and liars and cheats and they're the filth of society and no one cares but me. And I'm like – but you're the you're the criminal. <laughs> yeah, and you you look at their expressions, the expressions and the faces of these so-called criminals, and they just look like goofs. They do not look scary. They're they're just regular people who are afraid. And I'm mm-hmm. I wonder what I keep thinking about this book, reading this comic with our today our modern sensibility, mm-hmm. our our lens, our our I would say we have a, a degree, maybe a more awareness of of the plight of people who aren't like us, right? right? I think I think that's a conversation that has progressed a bit, um, an awareness of what other people are going through. And I wonder how this was read at the time versus reading it now. Mm-hmm. And if you just kind of look at this group of people in a bar at like a six o'clock in the afternoon, seven, sundown, and just assume they're all bad people right? because they're in a bar. Or is it like these people are just minding their own business? Was it assumed at the time that Rorschach's a villain and everything he's doing is absolutely wrong here? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, because there are some, I don't know, back in the 80s, right? Because there are some weird signifiers here. Like, you know, there's this bald guy, but he has these weird glasses with like a, t- a wire or tube running out of them into right. like a coat pocket. Behind him, there's there's maybe a trans woman. Behind him? Mm-hmm. Like, what are they trying to signify there? It's interesting. And, uh, like, some of the guys look like goons, I guess, yeah. from a Batman story. From, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they have those uh, those little captain's hats. But, but again, like, you leave this scene where he tortures this person, and you see the other people pick that guy up to help him. Like, they're looking out for the other people in their community. Rorschach's hurting people. <laughs> and he calls them human cockroaches as he leaves. Yeah. Um, then we flash forward and we get to meet uh, Adrian Vate, a.k.a. Ozymandias, as once again the the rude Rorschach decides to enter through a window on the 30th floor <laughs> instead of, you know, taking an elevator. He's a wanted man. He's a wanted man. Fair enough. But Ozymandias is, is a man of wealth and means, a little bit, a little bit more the Bruce Wayne type who uh, knew to 
Uh, he retired before the Keen Act, two years before. So this is a little bit of um, foreshadowing of how prescient he is, right. how much he can kind of tap into where things are going and and forecast and make executive actions that are going to be lucrative for him. Right. Um, I think that pays off later. It definitely pays off later. I mean, <laughs> this is a great setup to this character who ends up being, well... The mastermind. I was going to say, are we spoiling? We're spoiling, right? I feel like yeah, we yeah. have to. Sure. I don't know. We can't dance around it too long. Yeah. Um, but we also see, you know, yeah, he, he has his little action figures there. He, he's he got um, a poster in the background where he works for Famine Relief, and he seems all too aware, as he's talking to Rorschach, of... The counting down clock. Like, we look at his desk. He's got a newspaper that's talking about the doomsday clock. And he knows that the end of the world is coming. All the signs are pointing to it. And a person who claims to be want to be a superhero and wants to save humanity might take those as cues to try and enact a, a, a grandiose plan. <laughs> Maybe. I like the nuances of the conversation here where – Rorschach is kind of sticking up for the comedian. Yeah, it's funny yeah. because he comes hat in hand, a little bit uh, reverent, a little bit deferential toward uh, the power and status that Adrian Vate has at first, right? Mm -hmm. He seems to be addressing him with a certain degree of respect. And then when he, as he keeps talking in Rorschach's true form, I think that he just ends up putting his foot more and more in his mouth, saying some rude things, basically calling out Vade as a whore yeah. or, um, or a, a prostitute, a prostitute yeah. for making all of his um, toys and toys and merchandise. Yeah. yeah. And that's all because Vade said that um, comedian was essentially a Nazi. And I love when he's like, well, if that makes him a Nazi, well, then I guess you could just call me a Nazi too. And he, and, <laughs> and Vade's like, hmm. Mm, yeah. Which is like, uh, yeah, dude, you're kind of a Nazi too. Yeah. And what are your followers going to look like? In the TV adaptation. <laughs> they look like a bunch of alt-right Nazis. And they do. Yeah. I think that's another little indication of, like, the TV show perfectly picking up on what the characters represent and how certain zealots might fall into those kind of traps and think that Very much. they have these uh, pure ideals, but mm, you might be a Nazi. It's great that the show is going to really... It seems like the show is really going to underline who these characters were, who these original characters were in showing us their legacy. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, and then we're going to uh, be introduced to, I think, the last two uh, of the main cast of superheroes. Dr. Manhattan and Silk Specter Dose. Right. So Rorschach enters he just a, sneaks in everywhere he enters a military research center where dr manhattan one of the most powerful people is he just cuts through the fence and breaks glass and comes <laughs> in and i'm like oh that's great security we even see that there's like military armed military guards and he's just walking in there it's the 80s they had they, they had like a super eight camera out there yeah they, they had to change it every you know two hours but what's interesting um i mean we see like there's also cues about like how each of them speaks and Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan both have a a very unique word bubble for how they talk. Right. Rorschach is presumably a little bit creepy and gravelly. Gravelly, yeah. And there's this blue bubble encased in a white bubble um, for everything that Dr. Manhattan says, which makes it feel cold and distant and robotic. So I imagine when he says, 
Good evening, Rorschach. It's uh, like a little bit just like cold and tinny. Ethereal, otherworldly. Yeah. Right. And this is where our first introduction to Dr. Manhattan and his big, voluptuous, naked blue butt is. <laughs> it's not the dick. We get the ass first. Yeah. Which yeah. is fine. That's how I like it. <laughs> okay. The more you know. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we see that he is 40, 50 feet tall in yeah. this scene. He's monstrous, and he can size up or down. And I like how they use the panels to depict that transition in the background. It's right. it's not something that's addressed directly. It's just like he can size up and down at will. And they give good indications to particular characters' abilities, not through outright um, explanation. Or action scenes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of the only instances I recall in this first issue – where I had an issue with um, the dialogue being heavy-handed is this page right here where we have Rorschach say, good evening, Miss Jupiter, to um, Lori Jupiter. Yeah. And she makes... She's basic. She makes a direct, direct, like, this is my family history and why I... Uh, right. My history of uh, being Polish, but my mom being ashamed of that. And it just felt I like felt a... the same way, too. Yeah, it felt really... turn to camera kind of moment. Yeah. Really and I'm like, you don't do that. Exposition, yeah, heavy. But otherwise, you know, Rorschach doesn't get along with any of these people. He tries to t- tell all of them. They're all dismissive of his concerns about the comedian. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sally's like, good, I'm glad he's dead. Yeah, Sally gives a little bit more of a, a reveal to the back history of the Minutemen. She claims that um, the comedian attempted to rape her mom, the original Silk Spectre. There's going to be an interesting payoff for that whole backstory. Later on in the comic. Very much. Um, when she finds out who her daddy is. Uh, but I think that the tension right there between all of them, there's this coldness and distance between um, Dr. Manhattan and Lori that's like a little bit unspoken in how they're interacting with each other. But there's still a degree of respect that if she says, get rid of the comedian, he does. <laughs> right. Kind of thing. Yeah. But otherwise, he's, he's just not emotionally attached to her. No, I mean, they're obviously in a relationship, but it is frozen over a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has her arms crossed while she's talking to him the whole time. Right. And that's that's where, uh, with Rorschach mentioning, hey, I talked to Night Owl also about this. She's like, oh, yeah, Dan, I should go hit up that guy and uh, reignite that relationship because, obviously, things ain't working out between me and the blue dude. Yeah, Dan uh, has emotions. Maybe uh-huh. I should go talk to him. And and you get a sense that she's kind of trapped in this relationship. She is stuck in this government facility. She's like, can we go out? You know, and she is pretty much sanctioned by the government to be in this relationship to keep Dr. Manhattan happy and complacent. And the body language between them. Like you said, her crossing her arms and like crouching down, them being distant from each other, him yeah. never actually making eye contact with her. It's all a great way of, of saying that. And and how they express that in comic panel form is is really elegantly done. I mean, there's just a lot of richness to how they thought about how these characters will interact with each other that I, I feel a lot of comics aren't concerned with that element of of characterization and storytelling. Right. And which is why I'm all the more excited that someone like Damon Lindelof is going to take over the TV show because I feel like he totally gets that. As much as one might want to complain about 
certain elements of his storytelling, at least in Lost, the dude fucking knows characterization. It's character first with him, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And he nails it, and they nail it here. Anyway, just a few more pages to go with this. Um, and we have... Well, I love that we're, it's shown, even though in the previous panels, we see how dangerous Rorschach can be and how smart he is and mm-hmm. how he's leading the charge with this investigation and everything is about him and his mission. Not even with a snap of a finger, Dr. Manhattan can just zap him out of there. He just ghosts n- him out. No problem. Yeah. It, at one point he goes, I shall go and tell the indestructible man that someone plans to murder him. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Which, you know, is another great element of this, of, of how brilliant Ozymandias is, that he, he doesn't set about trying to um, physically destroy Dr. Manhattan. He just needs to make him not care anymore. Mm. That's like, true. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I like referencing His Marvel movies. His plan is really insidious. Right. I love referencing Marvel movies. And one of the things I love so much about that movie, Civil War, is mm-hmm. that it isn't a matter of, um, of, of solving your problems through fists. Right. It, what the problem is is a matter of ideology, and Baron Zemo is able to break down the superhero team by getting them to disagree mm-hmm. on something to a point where they can't resolve it, and it breaks up the group. And I was like, that is such a brilliant way to operate with a, a supervillain. But Ozymandias does it like across the board, physically, not physically, just emotionally and, and psychologically manipulative, whatever he needs. He's a triple, quadruple threat. He's the most brilliant and dangerous man, and it's going to be interesting to see how Jeremy Irons continues that character right. knowing that he's supposed to have that degree of, of foresight and intellect. And I, I wonder what his role is on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, yeah, now we have uh, you know Rorschach, Rorschach walking the streets. I imagine a saxophone is playing. <laughs> he's sad at night because a comedian died and no one cares but him again and Wah, wah, wah. And this is, this is where we get in the, the background, four more years, poster of, of Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon. We get doing the peace signs. References again to who watches the Watchmen and uh, Crystal Knocked on, the, on the, um, the fence being painted there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like everything, oh, the yeah. tensions are just ratcheted up. And the, the closing scene is a dinner date between Lori and Dan. A.K.A. Silk, Silk Spectre 2 and, and Night Owl 2. Uh, did you find it odd that it was that same night that she calls him up and goes out? This all happens in one night. I thought this happened like a day later or something. It's just right away she goes out with him. Yeah, I guess um, neither had anything. No, it must be the next day because... No, because earlier she... He she, left Hollis's house at midnight, right? Oh, wait, this is the day after. Oh, this is the day after that, right. This whole... This whole issue is two days, yeah. But she, right after Rorschach leaves is when she calls right. uh, Night Owl, and she's like, are you free right now? So, yeah, get that going. And, um, yeah, they, they go to this. They end the book in a very fancy upscale restaurant. You see how there's a little bit of, of, of a difference in the world. Like, mm-hmm. like there's a turkey on a plate that has, like, two legs on each side, so like oh, a four-legged yeah. turkey. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you know, for much as like Rorschach seems to want to rail against like homosexuality, you see like a, a, a gay couple mm-hmm. here in the uh, panel eating together and it seems like they're able to be open about it. This is the 80s, which also seems notable, you know, for us in, Very much. in 2019. It's like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But back then it's yeah. still taboo. 
Very. And as they're, as we see Lori and Dan kind of discussing the heyday, they have this fantastic conversation. And this is this is that panel that well, mirrors. It's interesting. Panel. Going back to what you're saying about how this scene looks and the scene is set um, with the gay couple there f- feeling free and normal. Like this whole scene in this restaurant feels like a place where people can go and be human and relax. Mm-hmm. And that is completely in contrast to Laurie's environment previously with Dr. Manhattan. Exactly. Yeah. So here she's like, oh, I can come be a person with somebody I like and be relaxed. She's smiling for the first time. It's great. Yes. I I think it's a a great contrast to where she was in that relationship. And I love that there's this really human moment between her and Dan where they're they're recalling that particular um, villain who used to uh, have the kink of being beat up by supervan, right. superheroes. And he pulled the, that trick on the wrong person, Rorschach, and Rorschach threw him down an elevator shaft. Yeah. It's a very mo- big moment of dark comedy that also is a great moment of levity. It's like, um, yeah. remember in Pulp Fiction, where they're shooting the shit um, with that one guy in the car, and they turn around to talk to him and blow his head blow off. Blow his head off, yeah. And it's one of the funniest yeah, yeah. fucked up moments. <laughs> and you catch yourself laughing at this guy getting his head blown off. Yeah. And this is this is just something that's kind of similar. This is dark humor. Yeah, I mean, that's the type of thing these people would laugh about, and but also feel a little bit guilty about, but they had to laugh about this because that was such a huge part of their life. That was their job, uh, doing this these superheroics, dealing with these crazy people. Yeah, uh, it just makes perfect sense, and yeah, I love I love the uh, the chemistry here between Dan and Lori. This is like a two page scene, and it's done so well, uh, and you just know that you want these two to see more of each other. You want to see them together. You you have the juxtaposition of Rorschach being very isolated, talking. The only person he talks to is his own journal, mm-hmm. and him talking about the death of a person. As you zoom up from the smiley face badge, it's it's very isolated. It's the absence of humanity in many regards. And then you have this panel where you zoom up again from that same smiley face badge up away from these people who are having a human moment. They're connecting with each other. They're laughing about something. And the panel, the frames are the exact same with uh, the nine panel and one is broken out. And then it ends... With them uh, laughing and they say, man, it it feels good to laugh. There don't seem to be many laughs nowadays. And then um, Dan says, well, what do you expect? The comedian is dead. (laughs) So funny. Which is a joke. Yeah. It's really great. And then, like you said, it ends on the Bob Dylan quote. At midnight, all the agents and superhuman crew go out and round up everyone who knows more than they do. I love that it ends with... I mean, there's a bit of cynicism in that Bob Dylan quote, but I love that it ends with this hopeful human moment of right. these two people finally connecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because this is the first time you – well, maybe not the first time because we do see the two night owls earlier conversing. But to me, this is the first time where I feel people are being relaxed and normal and I'm identifying with a couple characters. Yeah. I mean, there's this – like even with Night Owl and Hollis, um, it's it's a there's that father son mentality, the the power dynamic kind of mm-hmm. going on between them, right. the uh, reverence to like you know what you say, and, uh, and here, it's still human, but and 
at the end of the issue, it's more of a peer relationship. Exactly. Yeah. And a much needed moment of levity in an otherwise pretty dark and heavy comic. <laughs> oh, jeez. You know, that felt good. There don't seem to be so many laughs around these days. Well, what do you expect? The comedian is dead. Yeah, so that's it. That's the overall first issue. I mean, I think we did a bit of a deep dive there, and I know I could have kept going and then realized, okay, how I mapped this out was a bit extreme. No, it's great because I... I could have gone deeper and said more. There's so much to peel back in all of these panels. It's like it's it's so daunting. It's like where do you start? Right. Yeah. And or how deep how deep should we go? Because even if we were on the mic for four hours, we're going to leave stuff on the table. I, I think it's fun to kind of play around and figure out how to discuss this yeah. in a way that uh, hopefully is engaging for everyone else. Like, you know, if, if you guys have your comic book out and you're flipping along with the pages like we are. That I think might be a good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and um, yeah, I would definitely encourage everyone to do that. I think this is a, it's a fun journey. I'm excited to dive into that second issue here in a, a few days with you and see what else we can peel out of this. How you liking this, Rorschach fanboys? Oh, no. <laughs> Some people are like, oh, it's not like uh, the movie where he's just this angry little badass dude who punches people. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's a bit of a fascist. I would love <laughs> Yeah. I, I would, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that, that was actually in my notes because like with Rorschach, with the comedian, I mean, there's this, this, this cynicism going through this, this – book that is mainly uh, Rorschach's point of view. Um, and, and But there's also this Alan Moore kind of weaves in this distrust of systems, of governments, and, and definitely a distrust a distrust of the, the hardline, narrow-minded worldviews right. that are kind of calling the shots in this world and, and shaping the world by brute force, mm-hmm. or as some might call it, fascism. Yep. So this is a total just social commentary on a, a fascistic worldview. Fun place to kick things off. <laughs> We're going to dive through Yay, each, fascism. each issue of this, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I mean, I know just based on the notes we wrote out that we skipped over a lot of things, but mm-hmm. if there are particular things of note that you guys noticed that you thought we should have addressed, uh, please let us know in the comments. We would love to also talk with you guys about all of this. Um, so, yeah, hit us up, and you can reach um, us on our social media pages. Yeah, just go to whopodswatchmen.com and you can find links to our Twitter and Instagram handles and Facebook. We have a Facebook page now, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't do Facebook. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if you guys are on uh, Instagram, tag us on any Watchmen-related stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll repost you guys. And we'd love to uh, engage with you guys on all of those talking about this. We are pretty excited. You know, reading this comic and especially reading the uh, the – Portions of Under the Hood that come after it, mm-hmm. uh, Hollis's book. Man, it's just so – there's so much to chew on in this book and I can't wait to to kind of go over it again because I haven't read it in over a decade and I was kind of a different person back then. Yeah. To, to, see, to, to read it – I mean I'm not the most mature person in the world but to read it as – you know, with a more mature uh, point of view, it's – I'm getting a lot more out of it. Definitely. 
I mean, you used to be a huge bigot back then. <laughs> Don't uh, tell people that. <laughs> uh, folks, once again, we want to thank you guys for tuning in, and we will be back in a few days with our next episode. But until then, who pods the watchman? We do. We do.